Uh, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and meet me in Exodus chapter 14. We're going to continue in our series as we're looking at Christ in the Old Testament with the hope that we might make some biblical theological connections in the text. Biblical theology, it's a, a big phrase to mean that you take themes and pictures and you connect them throughout the Bible to tell a story. So God is always telling a story. And when we see the ways in which God is telling his story and then inviting us into it, it changes us. It changes how we see ourselves and how we see one another. Uh, lastly, uh, last week, I missed you guys. I had the wonderful joy and privilege of preaching the ordination and installation service of a man that I discipled back in Memphis last week. And so um, I know there's a lot of hand-wringing over the state and the future of the church, and there's a lot of hand-wringing over uh, the compromises and concessions that we make, and it was super encouraging to ordain and install a young man who is zealous about the things of the Lord, loves God's people, loves his family, and when you think about faithful ministers, to be a part of that ceremony last week was really, really special. So I missed y'all, but I was honored to be a part of that special day for him. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, you can say it with me if you want, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I've been thinking a lot about those last two words, liberty and justice, and I've been thinking a lot about liberty, what liberty means, liberty or liberation or freedom. It's the concept and the idea that in America, our government doesn't run and control our lives. Amen. It's also the reality that when we speak of liberty and liberation and freedom, that we have the freedom and the power to do as we please in many ways. And when we think about liberty and freedom, this day, June 19th, is especially special for some of us as we remember what liberty looked like on this day over 100 years ago. Juneteenth, for those who don't know, is the National Day of Celebration when the final slaves in Galveston, Texas, heard that they were freed. Two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation and three months after the end of the Civil War, a general rides into town, declares their freedom. And so for them, they had been waiting and praying for this moment, this reality of being free. So for many of us, as we think about what Independence Day looks like and feels like, there are some who, yes, we celebrate July 4th, as we will in a couple of weeks, and we'll thank God for America. And there are some of us who celebrate the day that began the journey of many of us actually walking and experiencing that freedom. When I think about liberty, when I think about freedom, I'm thinking about what it means to be free. And then I think about where the Israelites are in the book of Exodus when we pick up in chapter 14, And they are not there. They are not free. They are bound under the yoke of oppression under Pharaoh and Egypt. That they are in a place where they themselves are in slavery, in bondage. They don't experience justice, nor do they experience freedom. When I think about Israel and the freedom and the liberty that they lack, I have to zoom back and think about the book of Exodus as a whole. And it reminds me of Prince. It reminds me of Cher, Madonna, Beyonce, Sting. 
these uh, meatloaf. <laughs> Not the dinner, the, the singer. May he rest in peace. Uh, when, I, when I think about one word artists, there are artists that all you got to do is say one name and that one name conjures up plenty of images and pictures and feelings and emotions that this one name conjures up an entire narrative and story that one name holds an entire career. And when I think about the book of Exodus, that name Exodus symbolizes, it's not just the title of an entire book, but the Exodus forms a biblical theological picture of God's redemptive program. Now that, that's a mouthful to say that God uses different ways of exodusing his people throughout the Bible. Exodus literally means in the Hebrew, a going out which is what we see in the Exodus narrative, right? It's the going out of Israel from Egypt. But since we're in Georgia and since we're in the, in the, in the, in the Bible Belt, since we're in the South, um, we're, we're not going to say a going out. Uh, we might rephrase it and say it's getting out. In the same way that many of us don't say, I'm about to go to the store, we might say, I'm fixing to go to the store. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in a similar way that you might ask, someone might say, have you eaten lunch yet? You might not say, have you eaten lunch yet? You might say, did you eat yet? Just cram them all in there together. In a similar way, when we think about the book of Exodus and the Exodus narrative, it is all centered around the idea of getting out. What God is doing in and through his people to getting out out. Now, let's read, to, uh, let, let's read, look at this with me, Exodus 14, verses 13. I'm going to read all the way through 18. When you get there, say, oh yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Fantastic. Hear the word of the Lord. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before considering it, we should pray. So let's pray. God, would you honor and bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we ask. Amen. Amen. As we consider the getting out, I want to begin with the first point this morning when we find the Israelites in the teeth of a trap. First point, getting out of the trap. When you think about where they are and what they've just endured, God comes to Moses, burning bush, on fire, speaks out of the bush, says, go back, be my representatives, tell them that I, Yahweh, Eye, Esher, Eye, has sent you. He then goes, and then God begins to hurl a deluge of plagues upon Egypt as the battle lines are drawn between Yahweh and all of the gods of Egypt. 
And as God reigns supreme, the tenth and final plague comes. God, the angel of death, sweeps through. He kills every firstborn that did not have the blood splayed on the lintels and the doorposts of their homes so that there's anguish and crying and gnashing of teeth throughout all of Egypt. And Pharaoh's like, fine, go. So all of God's people, they scoop up everything they can find and they plunder the uh, Egyptians on their way out. But as they get out and they're stuck in a trap, for on one side is the Red Sea and behind them, Pharaoh's changed his mind and he is earnestly pursuing them. Now in the Hebrew, this reads with great tension. It reads with great urgency as you feel God has released them from bondage and yet they're stuck in a trap. Desperation, you might say, as they're caught between two decisions. One, go back into slavery and or be slaughtered or two, suffer death at the hands of drowning. It's a trap. There's nowhere for them to go. These are people who God has just freed, and yet they're in a trap. It looks bleak and dire, and this trap appears to be final until you realize one very important thing, that this is a trap of God's own making. In Genesis 15, when God promises that Abraham would not only be the father of a great nation, but he promises in Genesis 15 that your offspring will be sojourners in a foreign land for 400 years and they will be enslaved. Why? He says, because the sin of the Amorites has not come to completion. So God has premeditated this, which brings up a really important point that God doesn't react to anything. He preacts all things. Furthermore, God is the only one who can look into the future and have memories. Let that bake your noodle. So in the days of Abraham, God can see that his people are going to be in bondage for 400 years. And so what happens? In the Exodus, in the 400th year, God emancipates them. God is working this out. But he has to work it out in such a way that the Israelites don't take credit for what he's doing. I want you to look at something with me. Look at all of the first person personal pronouns in verses 15 through 18. He says, why do you cry to me? Then he says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand, verse 17, and what will happen? I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. I will get the glory. Uh, I am the Lord. I have gotten glory. God has to get them to a point when they realize that God is the one working on their behalf. When you think about a trap of God's own making, it's a trap that's purposeful. Because the Israelites and God's people have to get to a place when they realize that they have no agency that only God can deliver them. That's why in verse 13, he says, fear not, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of who? Of the Lord. God will work a victory out for you. All you got to do is be still. Sit your tail down and let me work it out. I think you've ever, have have y'all ever seen videos of people trying to rescue a wild animal? And they try to rescue a wild animal, and that wild animal's like fighting, fighting them tooth and nail. I remember seeing a raccoon with his head stuck inside of a glass cup. And it's like, oh man, I feel real bad for the raccoon. And then you realize the raccoons have rabies, and that's probably not the safest thing. But you see people going over, and they're trying to help them, and they that raccoon's running around, head banging into everything, just all over the place. And these animals will fight you tooth and nail. Why? 
because they realize that you might hurt them. But sometimes you've got to subdue an animal and pin it down in order to help it. There's a reality where God's trap here is purposeful so that he can get the Israelites to finally stop squirming so that he can reveal who he's always been to them. There's a reality where I think here, in order to be free from the trap, we've got to stop fighting. We've got to stand still. I don't know who this word is for, but you've been trying to fight and work and open doors and do everything yourself. And God is like, I wish you would just let me be who I am to you. There's a reality of getting out here where God puts them in a trap, but ultimately that trap is for the purposes of liberty, freedom, liberation. Because what happens? There's three million people locked in the bondage of slavery at the precipice of death and more death. And God says, hey, Moses, raise your staff. Now, if I'm, if I'm Israel and Moses just walks to the edge of the Red Sea and takes his staff and he's like this, I'm like, this man done lost his mind. We finna die. Not we're about to die. We finna die. And then all of a sudden, what happens? God divides the seas. I was studying this week and was reminded of this uh, black preacher who said that uh, he, um, he was in a service and a liberal black preacher had come and this liberal preacher did not believe in the miracles of the Bible. And so when it came time for him, he's preaching on the Exodus and for God to part the Red Sea, he gets there and this woman in the crowd says, "Woo! praise God, he drowned them Israelites in all that water. This preacher goes on to say, well, it's actually not a Red Sea. It's a sea of reeds. It's marsh and it's mud. They weren't actually drowned in a bunch of water. It was just, uh, they were stuck in the mud. And this lady says, "Woo! ain't that just like God, drowning all them Israelites in some mud? I was like, yes, listen, that's, that's a good word. But what we get here is that we get God's omnipotence and control over all of the elements And he divides the sea and not just divides the sea, but he holds up the walls of the water so the Israelites walk across on dry ground. This is the command of God, that even when he tells the ground to be as hard as the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the ground has no other choice but to obey. And in this moment, they walk across on dry ground. Now, here's the important thing. We're thinking in biblical theological terms, which means whenever you see water in the Bible, The authors of the Bible tend to use water as a symbol of God's wrath. So we talked about creation. It was formless and void, chaos. We talked about in the ark last week, God floods the earth, water. Here in Exodus, it's the Red Sea, water. And when God parts the water, watch this, God parts the water so that his people walk and pass through the waters of judgment to make it to the other side. Because God's servant has obeyed God and has done what God has told him to do. So then God's people, because of his obedience, God's people get to go through God's wrath to safety on the other side. Meanwhile, the Egyptians, as they're coming into the Red Sea, what happens? The waters of God's wrath pours down onto them, killing them, but sparing these people whom God loves. Are y'all smelling what I'm stepping in? What we see in the Exodus is that God is creating a picture of the gospel in miniature. He's getting the Israelites out of a trap, but he's also setting a foundation for how he's going to get us out of the trap of sin. Now, 
And this ain't the end of the story because as miraculous as the Exodus is, there is another Exodus in the Bible. And the second Exodus in the Bible, much like the first, has everything to do with what God is doing and has very little to do with what we do. Second point this morning, there's an invitation for us to get out of God's way. Get out of God's way. Have y'all ever gotten in God's way before? God, you tell me to pray and to pray big prayers. And here's, here's, I want this thing. And these 12 ways, with this time period on it, and I want it to look just like this. I'm talking about just get in his way. Just, I mean, all up in his way. And then there are others of us that can't get out of our own way. I wonder if there are some of us here who might experience the reality that no matter what you do, you can't get out of your own way. Just clumsy. Putting your foot in your mouth all the time sabotage yourself. You ain't got to agree. I know it. We all been there. And then wonder if you have ever prayed that God would help you. Lord, help me. And if you help me here, I promise I'm going to serve you with everything that I got inside of me. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm the only one. Okay, cool. I remember being about 11 years old and I had lost my Optimus Prime Transformer. And I remember praying earnestly with real tears. God, I don't know where this thing is. Would you help me find my Optimus Prime, I mean, I am on my knees. Lord, I will give you my whole life. I will do everything for you. Y'all laughing because y'all done did it before. But I, I, Lord, I will give you everything that you want if you help me find this transformer. And I remember looking under my bed, under a sheet, underneath a pillow, and there he was, Optimus Prime. And I remember being like, thank you, Lord. And then 10 minutes later, I went and got even with my brother because he's the one who hit it. So it's like in one breath, I'm asking God, to do this thing for me. And then the next breath, I'm actually not doing the thing that I told God that I was going to do. Paul defines this and he says, the things I don't want to do, I do those things. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And I wonder if you sympathize, it's like, you know, the right thing to do and you just don't do it. And sometimes you know the wrong thing to do. And your motto becomes, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Don't nod your head. We all do it. But I love that in the second Exodus, God prepares a pathway for us to get out of his way. Now, in the second Exodus, it comes in the book of Isaiah as Israel is, being, is getting ready to be thrust into exile because they've not done what God has done. God is getting ready to throw them out of Egypt. But in that process, he gives them hope for something that will happen on the back end of that exile. Look with me in Isaiah 43, 16 through 19. It's up here on the screens. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. Now watch this. When you see he makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, where does your mind go to? The Red Sea. Why? Well, yeah, we've just been looking at it. But this event would have been a lodestone. It would have been a, a, a watershed moment in Israel's history. They would have practiced it and rehearsed it as God is building his resume. It's super vitally important. So here's Isaiah. 
saying, the Lord makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. Then I like this. He says, they lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Have you ever quenched a wick? You ever licked your fingers together and quenched a wick? That is what God did to riders and horses and chariots. And it reminds me of the psalmist who says that some put their faith in horses and some in chariots and some in men. But we will trust the Lord our God for salvation. I love this. God is like, they came to me with all of their supreme military technology, and I hit them with some of that divine woo-woo and made them exist as if they didn't. Uh, I made them lie down. What a display of power. I made them lie down. They were extinguished, quenched like a wick. And then he says, remember not the former things. Huh. Now, God, you just told us essentially to remember what you did. You made a path in the sea and You subdued mighty waters, and now you're telling me to remember not the former things, nor to consider the things of old. I mean, God, what you mean? We're supposed to remember what you've always done. These are the things you've done. We draw strength and benefit remembering what you've done. Side note, some of us would be much more grateful people if we went back and remembered all that God had done. And we rehearsed remembrance. And we brought that joy and remembrance into the moment instead of always asking for God's hand. If we just look in the past, we can find his heart and how it's always towards us. I ain't got time to preach that sermon. He says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of hold. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now, okay, 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 God, you've been, you've been doing your thing throughout time. You know, you got the, the Red Sea and the pillar of cloud and fire. You backed the Jordan up. You stopped the sun in the sky for multiple days. You made a donkey talk. I mean, like you've done some amazing things. What are you going to do next? He says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, this is what I love. God says, I know what I've done before but you ain't seen nothing yet. He says, I'm going to make a way in the wilderness. Y'all remember the Israelites in the wilderness going round and around and around? Round and around and around and around and around, lost. God's like, you're going to be in exile, but I'm going to make a path in the wilderness for you to come back home. He says that you're going to be in desert with few resources. It's going to be dry, not a lot of food, but I'm going to cause a river to run through the desert. I'm going to cause provision in the desert. I'm going to lead you back to where you've come from. uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah speak about this as well. Jeremiah's like, hey, I'm in a valley of dry bones. Where is he? In the middle of the desert. God is like, Jeremiah, speak to these bones that they might live. And Jeremiah's like, God, you know I can't do that. He's like, speak to them, Jeremiah. Jeremiah's like, I can't do it. Jeremiah, speak to them bones. God, what you want me to do? what you want me to do? It was actually Ezekiel that he told that, Ezekiel 38. He's like, God, what you, Ezekiel was like, God, what you want me to do? You want me to speak to these bones? I can't make these bones live. And God says, that's the point. I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. And I will cause you to observe all that I've written and commanded. And here's how we get out of God's way. We get out of God's way when we realize that God has accomplished our liberty for us. And then because he's accomplished it for us, he's the one who not only makes us free, but keeps us free. If he did it before, he can do it again. In the second Exodus, God doesn't need our help. 
And I think about all the people who think back to their own salvation moments, and I'm, I'm like, hey, tell me, about, uh, tell me about when you came to faith and when Jesus became real to you. And they're like, well, you know, I went to church, and I walked an aisle, and I said this prayer, and I invited God into my, Jesus into my heart. And I'm like, man, that's cool. So what does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, i got to read my Bible every day, and I've got to pray, and I've got to do good works and um, help people across the street and donate all my money. Um, okay, why are you doing that? Because if I don't, then I feel like a bad person, and then I'm not saved. And so I think to myself, Israel was in a trap. God delivered them. In Isaiah, Israel is getting ready to go into exile with no way of coming home. And God is the one who uses pagan kings to bring them back in Ezra and Daniel, or Ezra and Nehemiah. And then I think about our own lives. God is the one who's rescued us by his power for himself. And we don't keep ourselves. He keeps us. The pathway to liberty will come, but it won't be by your own hand. It is appropriate then that in a sermon on the Exodus, we would be in a day commemorating Juneteenth, where there was liberation from slavery, oppression, and captivity that day. And although the Emancipation Proclamation freed slaves in the southern states in 1863, it would not be until June of 1865, three months after the end of the Civil War, when those slaves would hear the words of freedom and liberation. For two and a half years, they toiled. For two and a half years, they were stuck in bondage. And that day in Galveston, as Major General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston with the message of liberty and freedom and liberation and justice for all, finally, it became, in many ways, Independence Day for an entire group of people. Out of Egypt they came, out of bondage, out of slavery, out of oppression. They were liberated, and it's got me thinking. Are you still in Egypt? Are there things that you're still living in bondage to? As the oppression of sin continues to pour down, is it, are you in bondage? Are you, have you tried so hard to not do those things? Are there habits that continue to enslave you? Are there ways of being in life when you just can't get out of your own way? Do you truly and fully believe that the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf is sufficient or are you still trying to impress and please God with no avail? Because the reality is, is that there is a person who's coming that will ultimately help us. And the invitation this morning is to trust God, third point, and get out of Egypt. Now, I told you earlier that there was another exodus in the Bible. I wasn't fully genuine because there's actually three exoduses in the Bible. And the third exodus in the Bible happens when Matthew opens his gospel. And we find that Joseph and Mary, because of the command to kill all the firstborn Jewish boys, have fled to where? Egypt. And so Matthew says, out of Egypt have I called my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son. So out of Egypt comes Jesus, signifying that my people were once in bondage. I have led them out, and this young boy is the vessel for your liberation. 
Fast forward. You remember in Luke 4 when Jesus goes to the temple, it's a snotty nosed little boy, and he walks up in the middle of the temple, and he walks over to the wall, and he pulls the scroll of Isaiah off the wall, doink, and he drags it over to the middle in front of everybody, and he gets there, and he starts rolling out the scroll of Isaiah. He's got to roll all the way to chapter 43 and 48, so he rolls all the way out. He rolls all the way out, and everybody's sitting there looking at him like, y'all looking at me, and he, roll, he, rolling, he rolling it all out, and he gets there, and he stands up, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to those who are poor, to declare and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the year of Jubilee. And he says, this is me. I'm him. I'm him. The one who Isaiah prophesied is about me. So then he takes it and he rolls the scroll back up and they're still looking at him like, what is this boy doing? He drags it over back against the wall and he, he has to have a little help because he's, you know, young. So he puts the scroll back in there. And what he's doing is he's essentially saying everything you read about Exodus and everything that Isaiah prophesied would happen is all centered around me. So when he says that, He's taking the words of Hosea and Isaiah, and he's saying, I am the better and truer Moses. I am a liberator appointed and anointed by God to grant freedom to people's souls and their bodies from earthly oppression. And when I think about Jubilee, here to declare the year of Jubilee, we used to sing all kinds of songs, uh, old, Dick, old Dixie uh, Quartet songs about Jubilee. We used to love singing about Jubilee. We don't talk about Jubilee that much anymore, but Jubilee... If you were to read Leviticus 25, you would find that God made a provision so that people would not own people. In Leviticus 25, he says that every 10 years, everyone's debt is supposed to be forgiven. I know there are some of us who would wish that that would happen in our day and age. Everyone's debt. Go home to where you've come from. You no longer owe anyone anything. The year of Jubilee. And Jesus says that I'm coming to proclaim the year of Jubilee. So now it's becoming to get a bit on the nose, right? Because Moses raised his staff in obedience to God's word, God raises up his own son who's obedient to his word. The Israelites come out of Egypt and into the promised land, and Jesus makes the same journey but better. And then I think about how we think about Jubilee in the forgiveness of debt. Friends, is that not the gospel? That in Christ Jesus and because of Christ Jesus, all that you have been indebted to is forgiven. Hear the way that Paul describes this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He says this, that Christ, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's speaking about freedom, about liberation. It makes sense then that some of the earliest celebrations of Juneteenth were referred to as Jubilee Day, when everyone's debt had been canceled, when no one is longer bound. And it reminds us of the freedom and liberty that Christ affords when he came to erase our debts. What can wash away my sin Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I wish somebody would come with me this morning. This is the good news of the gospel. When you and I were bound by sins, oppression, and tyranny with no hope in the world and no freedom, someone outside of our situation stepped into our situation and made it his situation so that we might walk free. We needed someone to deliver us, someone to liberate us. We needed someone to rescue us from the trap 
out of Egypt. Then along came a man named Jesus. And when I think about the sea, he not only split the sea, but he walked on it. And when I think about, he proclaimed sight to the blind, but he also gave sight to the blind. He proclaimed healing to the lame, but he also made the lame walk, who not only proclaimed life everlasting, but he himself is life everlasting. Do you see, friends, that Jesus Christ is our exodus. Now watch this. We talked about, last week we talked about Noah building an ark, right? Noah builds an ark, big old huge honking boat in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the desert. What does God do? He sends a flood and water symbolizes what? The wrath of God. So now you've got the entire earth covered in God's wrath, but there's one vessel that sails safely through God's wrath and that's the ark. Fast forward in the gospel, we find that Christ and what he's accomplished for us. Now, we see the wrath of God being poured out against all unbelief, but there's one vessel that offers safe passage through the wrath, through the, through the wrath of God, and that is Christ Jesus, so that all who are inside the ark pass through safely. Baby, do you swim well? I don't. I need an ark to come and save me. Do you hear me? Fast forward to the Exodus. What was the Exodus really about? Yes, it was the Israelites getting out of bondage, but it was the Son of God successfully passing through the waters of God's wrath so that his people might attribute his victory to themselves. This is the gospel. And what does Juneteenth show us anything other than you may be bound under oppression of some type, but it has an end date. You might have a chronic disease, but that is coming to an end. You might have cancer, but that's coming to an end. Because there is one day coming when God will make all, un all sad things untrue and he will make right all things. I like the way that Tim Chester puts this, the way that I'm describing it. He says this, for the Israelites on the western side of the Red Sea, they were runaway slaves. And on the eastern side, they were a liberated people. Friends, on this side of the cross, on the BC side of the cross, we're enslaved. To our sin, no hope in the world. On this side of the cross, we are liberated as sons, liberated unto sonship, as Paul says in Galatians. Because ultimately, and finally, I'm about to shut my mouth. I lied. There aren't three exoduses in the Bible. There's four. Because there's one to come, when ultimately, fourth and finally, we're getting out for good. There is a reality that this world is not our home. You were not built and designed to live in a fallen world. We were not built and designed to live in a world marked by sin and injustice and oppression and selfishness and self-righteousness and cattiness and unkindness. We were marked to dwell in the presence of God. There's a reality that where we are now is not where we've always been meant to be. And here's the point of this entire sermon. Here's the thrust of everything I've got to say. That ultimately, what I want us to see in the Exodus is that Jesus is the greater Moses that is liberating us from earthly oppression until we get out for good. I wonder if you feel oppressed by sin. I do sometimes. Sin I can't get away from. Sin that just owns me. I've got to live as one who's free. And I've got to live as one whose sonship is not in question because Christ accomplished it for me. And I don't know where you are. Maybe you feel like Maybe the sin and the condition of your own soul. Maybe you feel so far from God that it's hard for you to think about getting back to him. I just want to encourage you that there is a day coming when we will dwell with him. 
where all of the things that feel like they get in between us and God, there will be no interference, that we will have direct access to him in all of his fullness. And even in heaven with a new body, we still won't be able to comprehend the greatness and the glory of who God is because Jesus will crack the sky like an eggshell and he will sound the holy hootie hoo and the dead in Christ will rise and meet their souls in the sky. And those of us on looking will see what God has done and be there with our mouths wide open. Can you believe what we're seeing? And then he's gonna remake all of the earth and he's gonna take away all of the sin. That anxiety and depression will be damned to hell. Chronic illness will be damned to hell. Death, darkness, disappointment, hatred, hurt, harm, greed, slander, avarice, all of it, damned to hell. And there we are with unveiled faces before the presence of God, where we won't even need a son because the son will play second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth chair to the glory of God as he provides all the light that we need. And then ultimately, it's a time for us to look back at all of the scars and what he's brought us through and say he had a plan all along. And here we are, unadulterated and unashamed in a beautiful, rapturous relationship with the king of the universe. We will ultimately get out one day because God will pour his wrath against all unbelief. But baby, I ain't got to swim. I don't need a life vest. I don't need a lifesaver. I got one. His name is Jesus Christ. I'm sailing on an ark. I'm done. I'm in my seat. But this fourth and final Exodus, this fourth and final Exodus, what God did in Exodus 13, And then in Exodus 14, Moses is transformed into a worship leader. What we ultimately get in Jesus is that Jesus leads us through the wrath of God into the point where we can worship and praise him for all that he's done. 